Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 2 Samuel chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew steadily stronger, stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. Sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and his second Ch- Chiliab by Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, and the third Absalom the son of Machah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Gesher, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithrium, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David at Hebron. It came about while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? And Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hands of David, and yet today you charge me with a guilt concerning the woman? May God do so to Abner, and more also, if as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan even to Beersheba. And he could no longer answer Abner a word because he was afraid of him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. All right, a little bit of review to get us back up to speed in 2 Samuel. Um, Saul and his sons are dead or at least some of his sons are dead. Saul and Jonathan have died. David is king over a divided Israel. Abner, Abner has anointed Ishbosheth, um, Saul's son, and made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, even over all Israel. So Ishbosheth is the king of 11 tribes, and David now is the king of one tribe. Uh, Abner, you remember um, that Abner is the commander of Saul's army, and Saul and David's households are at war with one another. Um, Abner, Abner was the commander of the army of Ishbosheth, and Joab is the commander of the army of David. Remember that Abner and Joab come together. Um, at that skirmish, and it's 12 against 12, and all 12 end up killing each other. And um, that, that, that famous 12 versus 12, they all slaughter each other at the same time. Abner then, following that, kills Azahel, who is Joab's brother, one of the sons of Zeruiah, right? Those are nephews of David. So um, remember that Abner, Abner kills Azahel. That will come into play um, shortly in the future in this book. But um, So that's a quick summary of what's going on here. David still has work to do to 
bring the kingdom together. And Saul's household, though it's fading, is still able to fight. Saul's household is declining. David's is increasing, it says in verse 1. There was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. Um, such, is the, um, such is the contrast between one following the Lord and one who has rejected the Lord. The uh, house of Saul is growing weaker. David's house is growing stronger. Then, immediately after this, we get this long list of sons that were born to David at Hebron. Um, it's interesting to note that David has been multiplying wives. David, his family is growing. He has Ahinoam, Abigail, Makkah, Haggith, um, uh, I'm skipping one, um, Haggith, Abital and Eglah, and then there's Michael also back there um, in the distance. That's seven wives that he has at this kind. Now, some say that this is listed here because in the scriptures of the of the um, of the tribes, they would try to uh, speak of the virility of the king, and so he's multiplying wives and having sons, and it speaks to his virility. Um, let's not go that way because the kings were to not multiply wives. They knew the law of God. The law of God said you shall leave your father and mother and be joined to your wife. Not plural, it was singular. And then specifically, the, the kings are told in Deuteronomy seventeen seventeen, he shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. Right, So the kings knew this law, and they were not to multiply wives. And indeed, we see um, the fruit of that in David's son, Solomon, whose heart was turned away um, after the gods of his more than seven wives. Right? Um, if, if Saul had his seven, then Solomon had his thousand. Um, Calvin says on this that we are shown that he did not keep God in mind in all his conduct. David did not keep God in mind in all his conduct. Though a man after God's own heart, he also multiplied wives against God's word. He was not ignorant of the law of God, and yet he went ahead with this. And again, Calvin says, now this is shown to us that we will know that although David was chosen by God and had been declared to be a man after God's own heart, still he did not cease to be a poor sinner, right? Who had need of mercy as we all have, right? He's, he's in need of mercy. The heroes of the Bible are flawed, sinful, common men, right? That's what we love about the Scriptures is Peter betrays the Lord and yet repents, right? Um, if we wanted Peter to be some guru of a mystery religion, he never would have betrayed the Lord, and it never would have been written down, right? He would have betrayed the Lord, it just wouldn't have been written down for posterity. And then we would begin to worship saints and worship heroes rather than worship the God who gave them any good that they had. And so here's David's sin being dictated out in this, in this section. He's not even the king of all the combined tribes yet, and here he has 
the audacity to break God's law and take upon himself seven wives. Um, he has need of repentance. Psalm, you know, the, the great psalms of repentance that he wrote, we often apply to that one incident in his life of taking another wife, right? But it's also from early in his life taking these wives in Hebron. And, and what we learn is that he's a, sin, he's a sinful man. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Right? He's depraved right from the womb. He's sinful and born a sinner. Um, and before we pass on from this section, here's David. Here's David's shame being listed out in Scripture for all of us to think about. And we think, wow, seven wives, that's terrible. But how many wives have you had, men? How many wives have you had virtually? Right? If, if there were a list of your wives written in Scripture, it would be a terribly long list for many of us, right? And the shame we would feel would be great. So, um, if you have multiple husbands, women, think through that. Next, we join, we join in the action now, and Abner, we take up this, uh, this story of Abner. A- remember, Abner is against David. Abner is the one who anointed and called on and set up Ishbosheth as an opponent to David, as the commander, or as the leader, the king of the, the 11 tribes. And so, um, and it's amazing that uh, very shortly Abner would turn tables and join David and that David would have him. Um, so what happens to get Abner to the point where he's willing to leave behind Ishbosheth and go back to David or go to David? Well, it starts in verse 6. It came about while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Well, of course he's strong in the house of Saul. He set up the king. He's probably stronger than the king. Ishbosheth is a man that he can push around, right? If, if you're the one who's instrumental in getting the king set up, then um, you have more power than the king. Now, Saul, it says in 7, now Saul had a concubine, Saul, Old King Saul, dead King Saul, had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aya. And just think about that. An incidental, it's almost an incidental part of the story, but you get, we get that concubine's name and the name of uh, her father, daughter of Aya. I'm assuming that's her father. That may be her mother. Um, I'd have to check the, the Hebrew. It has the feminine ending there, though. Um, but we get, the, we get it, her name, right? We're thinking about Abner, we're thinking about David, we're thinking about all these, these power brokers, and yet here's this concubine in the middle of things who's just being, um, just being used, right? And um, the concubine was, was sort of a wife of Saul, but a wife... Uh, given to particular pursuits. 
And so Saul had this concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, so Ishbosheth, the king, says to Abner, the commander, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Um, now, in, a, in initially reading this, I was willing to be more sympathetic to Abner. Well, maybe it's a false accusation. Right? Maybe this is a false accusation that Ishbosheth has has made. And then I read Calvin, and Calvin con- convinced me that Abner is a despicable man, and he did go into that concubine. Um, Ish, if Abner was a man of ambition, and clearly we see that he's a man of ambition, to go into the king's concubine had political meaning. Right? You were essentially taking over his household. You're essentially saying that what was his is mine now. And so this would have been both an offense to Saul's son, but also um, you know, offense to any king um, in that situation. And so I, it seems that his anger, his very passionate response is because of a guilty conscience. Right? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hands of David. And yet today you charge me with a guilt concerning the woman. Um, Had he done it, He protests very loudly. It's a subtle accusation. Why have you gone into my father's concubine? You know, um, but it's coming from the king, but he protests so loudly, so it seems so. Um, And his response can basically be summarized. Who do you think you are accusing me of this? Who do you think you are? I'm I'm Abner, right? Even if... Even if uh, I did, wouldn't it be appropriate for me to go into the concubine of the dead king? Um, th- this could mean that Abner had... had uh, um, it could also mean that Abner just had ambition for the throne himself, right? Um, he set up Ishbosheth as a as a um, stepping stone, and now he was going to take over... Um, Calvin says, since Abner had put Ishbosheth on the royal throne, and if he wanted to keep him there, why did he not show him any respect? Right? He doesn't show Ishbosheth any respect in his response. He's just like, who do you think I am? Am I a dog's head? Am I a dog's head to Judah? Um, so when subtly corrected, Abner's reaction was disproportionate. Right? Disproportionate reactions to subtle corrections. <laughs> um, you, when corrected, have you ever overreacted to a subtle correction? <laughs> because someone has nailed you, right? And you just don't want to admit that they're right and you're wrong, right? Um, that's how a guilty conscience works. Right? A guilty conscience is impatient. A guilty conscience cannot just let things roll off of it 
At least my guilty conscience can't, right? My guilty conscience doesn't let things roll off. And so when anybody comes close to getting to naming the sin that I've participated in, it's like, pow, right? That's why spouses who know each other so well, right, and know when their spouse is in sin can say one little thing and it's just like, pow, you know? And then two hours later, once you've calmed down, you go back to your wife and say, you know what, you're right. I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that to Zeke. <laughs> you didn't even hear me. Um, uh, how readily those who have no fear of God will complain of being afflicted when one is actually working as much as possible for their welfare and attempting to bring them back to the right path. Right? Those who have no fear of God will be will complain of, you know, being afflicted by somebody calling out their sins. This is terrible. How could you ever, I mean, uh, who do you think who do you think you are? And that's why it's hard to elder and pastor. Because you deal with guilty consciences all the time. And the response is one often of pride. And not wanting to hear, uh, not wanting to be corrected, not wanting to be brought back onto the right right path. Um, <clears throat> when you are reproved or corrected, take it patiently, even though it's painful. Right, children. Even though it's painful when your parents correct you, take it patiently. Take a deep breath, because your pride's going to want to make you fight back. Um, some only respond to the pain of rebuke with pride. And rebuke's painful, right? It's painful. But some only respond to the pain with pride. Lying. um, Denying. Uh, Some, like Calvin with Farrell, in Geneva, take it as God's kindness and direction. You remember Calvin comes to Geneva and Farrell says, you know, God curse your, your scholarship if you leave this town and don't become a pastor. And Calvin said it was as if God was speaking directly to him. And he stays, right? And he said, you know, when, when they leave, he said about going back to Geneva that he'd rather die a thousand deaths. And yet he stayed, and that rebuke from Pharaoh was, was taken patiently by Calvin. And so you see his godliness, his willingness, to, um, his willingness to see in a man's rebuke the rebuke of God. And that's where we need to get in our own growth, in our own receiving of rebuke, all of us. Can you, see, can you receive, children, your parents' correction as God's voice to you? Can you receive their correction as God's voice to you? Do they sometimes get you right? Yeah. Do you think God uses means? Do you think God uses your parents? So it's God who's actually correcting you, right? It's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's wonderful. It's wonderful that God would care for you by giving you parents that will, will, uh, will correct you. Your elders, are you willing to to hear your elders rebuke as the voice of God in, in your life. What about your spouse? 
Are you willing to hear your spouse's rebuke as the, the voice of God? Are you really, think of this, are you really so holy that no one can correct you? I mean, that's laughable, right? When we contemplate our depravity, when we contemplate our sinfulness, I mean, we should be, Christians should be eminently correctable. Always correctable. And so uh, none of us is so holy that we can't, we can't be corrected. Now it goes on here, um, Abner's sin. Look at what Abner says about his sin. What does he say um, about this? Well, one, first of all, he, he, he responds to the, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Right, That's a rebuke. Why have you done this? He responds, first of all, by, by, with pride. Am I a dog's head? Right? What, who do you think I am? Today, and then he brings up his accomplishments. You know, wh- I've been working for the house of Saul all this time. And that, this is the sort of response I get. We never respond to correction that way, right? I mean, that's totally deflection. It has nothing to do with what he's done. It has to do with, you don't seem to be appreciating me, right? You couldn't possibly be appreciating me if you're trying to correct me from, from my sin, right? Um, today I show you kindness to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, right? And everybody around him, and have not delivered you into the hands of David. I haven't delivered you into the hands of David. I mean, it's such an arrogant statement for the commander of the army to say, I, you know, I've been the one who, who's kept you from being delivered into the hands of David. And then yet today you charge me with a guilt concerning the woman. And I, what stood out to me on that is that the guilty tend to minimize their sins, Right? The guilty minimize their sins. It's a little thing. You know, why are you calling me out? It's just guilt concerning this woman. Doesn't name her name. Doesn't talk about his harlotry. Right? Doesn't talk about his adultery. It's just guilt. This general concept. This guilt concerning this woman. Calvin says... um, Well, he had to act like a brazen-faced whore. For he had taken the concubine of a king. And whether he wanted her as his wife or as a whore, he should not have done it without the approval of the one who was supposed to have all authority over him. And for it to be called a very small fault, which was not worth even mentioning, now where could this have led to? I say that Abner must have had a face of brass to talk like that. But that is the way with all hypocrites. When they have committed the most villainous crimes in the world, they merely wipe their mouths. They do not want it even mentioned. How do we do this today? How do we minimize sins? You know, the first thing we do is what Abner did here is we change our language. Right? Murder is, abortion is reproductive rights. Right? Our language changes to hide our sins. Sodomy is homosexuality, is same-sex attraction, is something positive. Is, 
you know, and so we do this with our language all the time. We minimize our sins by changing the way that we talk about them. This is exactly what Abner's doing. Guilt concerning the woman is really adultery and harlotry and whoredom. And he will not speak of it that way, certainly. But you know who would speak of it that way? David. King David would speak of it that way. I am the man, right? He is the one who would name his sins as sins. Um, and then, so, so we change our language in the way that we do this even when we're arguing with our kids about their sins. They'll, they'll, they'll say it's one thing and we'll say it's another thing, right? And, and they'll be like, I, I wasn't lying. I was trying to, you know, I was trying to um, explain what happened. Um, we also make excuses for our sins, right? Anger made me do it. I've never, I've never known any other feelings, any other attractions. I guess I'm just hopeless, we say. Oh, pity me, would you? I guess I'm just hopeless. Now you're worse than hopeless. You're dead in your sins. Um, we say things like, I didn't want to do it, as if that's going to ease somebody else who's correcting us. I didn't want to do it. You know, I didn't want to sin against you. And so we're, we're constantly minimizing our sins. Is that right or is that wrong? It's wrong. It's very bad to minimize your sins. What do you do then if you're always making excuses for your sins? What do you do? What are we supposed to do? Well, First, come to hate your sins. Minimizing your sins makes you not able to hate them. Because they're not so bad, right? Don't minimize sins. Maximize them. Maximize God's holiness and maximize the offense that our sins are against Him. Maximize your sins. Even thoughts are sinful in the sight of God. Right? So, so maximize. Right? Use the words of Scripture to define your sin. I am a liar. I am a cheater. I am, I am a, a whore. Right? I am, um, I am the sinner. Right? So you come to, you, you want to maximize your sins. Read the Westminster Larger Catechism on the Ten Commandments. Right? It'll, it will fill in the gaps of where you don't think you're sinning. Westminster Larger Catechism goes through and defines what are the sins, um, what are the sins committed in, or what are the sins defined in the, the, each of the Ten Commandments. And it's convicting, right? Um, when your parents correct you, children, and I keep coming back to your children because I'm in the business of trying to correct my children. Hard. It's hard work. Um, rolling of eyes indicates disease in the heart. Rolling of eyes indicates there's a disease in your heart. Anna, stop rolling your eyes at me. Now is not the time. <laughs> but rolling of your eyes indicates probably, it's like Abner here. He was nailed by Ishbosheth. And he responds poorly. And so when you roll your eyes, it's an indication that your parents have got you right. 
But it's also an indication that you're, you're rebelling against your parents' correction. Right? So rolling of eyes indicates disease in the heart. Be disgusted with the sin of your heart. Be disgusted with it. It's disgusting. It's putrid. Don't think that sin is delightful. You've got to recast it in your mind as Scripture casts it, as the one thing that qualifies you for hell, the one thing that God would be happy to, to spend His wrath on you eternally. You've got to recast it as despicable and disgusting and putrid and wrath and, and deserving of God's wrath. Um, don't be Cain. Cain was another. Cain was another sinner who minimized his sin, didn't he? Cain minimized his sin and minimized God's punishment too. Whines that God's punishment is too hard for him. Right, and that's not good. Second, look at the example of repentance in Scripture. Name some famous repenters. In Scripture, Peter repents after he betrays his Savior who's hanging from the tree. It's astonishing, isn't it? How, who else? Famous repenters. Yeah, Charlie. Jonah. Jonah goes and does what, after he rejects God's call, then God calls him and he goes. Sort of doesn't end well, but he goes. The Apostle Paul. He goes from a persecutor of the church to an apostle. Right? After, G, he, after he comes to Christ. I think, I think maybe that thorn in his flesh was the knowledge of the was the knowledge of the unkindness, even murder, that he had committed against the church. It's something he carried with him. Perhaps it's something else, but it could be that. And so, yeah, the Apostle Paul is a, and it is a repenter. Who else? Solomon. If you take the book of Ecclesiastes as Solomon's last word, then he's a, he is a repenter. That's right. Nehemiah prays and confesses the, the sins of his people. I mean, we could almost go through every, every apostle, every... every uh, I mean, there's David, obviously, naming his own sin. There's um, Manasseh. King Manasseh is, is a despicable man. He's, he's sacrificing children. He's, he's bringing sacrifice. He's, he's praising the sun and the moon from the temple. Right, and then he repents, and, he, and it says he came to know the Lord. Judah and, Tamar. Judah and Tamar, yeah. I mean, from beginning to end, the scriptures are a chronicle of sinners, but repenting sinners, right? And there are unrepentant sinners. There, Esau doesn't repent, and he's an example of the opposite. He sought for repentance, but did not find it. Right, and so. Um, this is a way, study the examples of repenters in Scripture. So come to hate your sins, study the example of repenters, and then remember the gospel is for sinners. 
If you've done that work, if you've maximized your sin, if you feel terrible, right? As, as, if you've if explored your depravity, so to speak, and you've looked at repentance, then you remember that the gospel is for, for sinners. Jesus came for the sick, not for the healthy. That's good news, right? Jesus came for the sick. Zeke, you need to listen. That's what your mother is saying to you. Listen to me now. So the gospel is for sinners. Jesus came for the sick and not for the healthy. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners. So it's not your sin that keeps you from Jesus Christ. It's your sin that leads you to Jesus Christ. He came for the sick. You're sick. You're sick. All of you are sick. I am sick. I need salvation. And then you pray that God blesses you with Holy Spirit power. Now I sound charismatic. Pray that God blesses you with Holy Spirit power. Romans 8.13, If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Have you prayed that God would give you power to resist temptation, to resist your sin, to repent? Right? Romans 8.12, the verse before it. So then, brethren, we are, not, we are under obligation not to the flesh, but we can live not to... Sorry, I screwed that up royally. So then, brethren, we are not under obligation to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We don't have an obligation there. I mean, do you believe that? Do you believe you're not under obligation to serve your flesh? If the Holy Spirit lives in you, that's true. And then five, remember this. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The gospel crushes, annihilates the self. The gospel annihilates the self and exalts God. Paul said of himself that I die daily. I die daily, 1 Corinthians 15.31. And so the gospel crushes, but God exalts. If you try to exalt yourself, God's going to humble you. God will bring you low. He will bring you down. He will not allow you to, to ignore His glory. Right, but if you if you know the gospel and it just crushes you, it annihilates you, right? It brings you to the end of yourself. Well, then God will lift you up. God will exalt you. Can you imagine what it means to be exalted by God? The God who created everything, God who has all power. What does it mean when he blesses? What does it mean when he exalts? What does it mean when when he lifts up? That's that's incredible. Well, that's what Abner didn't, didn't get. He was defensive, he minimized his sin, and he will shortly meet his end. He will be brought very low. And he's going to be brought low by a despicable man. Um, Abner's death is, is not very noble because of the means by which God puts him to death. But that's what I wanted to think about tonight how we deal with our guilt, how we deal with our sin. 
um, by the bad example of Abner. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for teaching us by your spirit. Father, I pray that, that you would bring conviction to our hearts, that, that your word preached would not simply be uh, empty noises, but that we would actually put these things into practice, Father, that we would be correctable, that we would maximize our sin, that we would study the examples of repenters in Scripture, and that, Father, we would seek power by the Holy Spirit to put, put to death the deeds of the body. Father, help us. Help us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.